Well, good afternoon, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures over these next few moments. But before we dive into that, let me share with you a brief word about the translation we've been using for the past couple of months. Some of you may have noticed a little bit of shift in, in uh, the words that have been read and maybe the translation that you've heard from on a Sunday during our gathering. Well, back in, uh, I guess on Easter Sunday, we I started to experiment and explore with the what's called the Christian Standard Bible Translation. It's a newer English translation, and that represents a departure from the English Standard Version, which, is, which has been my translation of choice since 2001. It's a translation that I still love today. But after, just talking, after experimenting with the CSB and, and praying and talking with the elders about this dynamic, we, we agree that we should continue uh, ordinarily to preach and to teach from the Christian Standard Bible Translation in our Sunday gatherings like this. And the reasons for that are at least four. One, we believe the CSB is a faithful translation of the original uh, Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, that the Translation Oversight Committee did a great job working directly from our most reliable manuscripts and translating the words of the Bible well into English. But then the second reason is that the CSB is a highly readable translation, that its syntax and the way they put uh, the sentences together uh, reads quite smoothly. In fact, it's on a readership level of about seventh grade. So it serves well a wide range of English speakers, whether English is someone's first language or second language, or whether someone is quite uh, experienced in education or maybe less so. Whatever the case may be, we believe the CSB will hold a, is a highly readable translation for a wide range of people. But then the third reason is that the CSB is an appropriately inclusive translation. And here's what I mean by that. When referring to God, the CSB retains masculine references. So God is referred to as Father. Jesus is referred to as Son. God is referred to as King. That's all reserved and retained in the CSB. And when pronouns are used in reference to God, again, you kind of get the masculine, which is classic Orthodox Christian faith and belief, referring to God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit, referring to God as King. But when the writers of, let's say, Paul's letters, when he turns the corner and he begins to address human beings, and he talks to the church, he oftentimes uses a word uh, that's translated brothers in English, and back in the day, and for a long time, brothers has been an acceptable uh, kind of term that would encompass both men and women. Well, we live in a day now where that is less so in our culture, where we don't usually talk about men and brothers in reference to all men and women and all brothers and sisters like we used to do in our country and in our culture. And so this translation, wherever it finds that type of language, when the church is being addressed, it will translate uh, those references something like brothers and sisters. And so it identifies and addresses men and women in the life of the church, recognizing that the church is comprised of men and women. We like that about the CSB. And then the fourth reason why we believe the CSB to be a helpful translation is that uh, our kids' ministry curriculum called the Gospel Project it is a curriculum that's based on the CSB. So in a sense, we're kind of catching up with where our kids are and the passages that they're reading and that they're memorizing together as they grow as disciples. And so we believe all these reasons to be good and valid reasons for us to move forward in studying the CSB together ordinarily. That doesn't mean that we might not use other translations at different points when we think it would be helpful. Uh, and I want to be careful here because anytime uh, someone like me stands up and we endorse a translation, I do not want to give the impression to you that there is one definitive translation that everybody should read. Uh, I, don't want, I do not believe there is one definitive English translation of the Bible, whether it's King James Version, whether it's the Christian Standard Bible, whether it's the English Standard Bible, whatever the case may be. I believe we as English speakers and just the nature of human language, which is malleable and somewhat elastic and kind of grows and morphs over time, we are always going to be in need of fresh and faithful translations of our ancient manuscripts. And so we're going to need new translations more and more and more the longer we are here in this world before Jesus returns. And so there are a lot of good translations. Some tra translations are definitely better than others, but there are several very good English translations of the Bible, and we're just choosing to use the CSB in our time together like this. If you'd like to study up that more, if that interests you, or maybe if that bores you, I apologize, whatever the case may be, on the table in the back, there's a, there's a little article that I wrote just kind of explaining some of this in more detail. Now, with that said, let me invite you to grab your Bibles, whatever translation you have, and open up to John chapter 1. And as you're finding your way to John chapter 1, let me remind you why we read and study the Bible to begin with. 
Why do we give attention to the scriptures when we gather together? Why do we give attention to the scriptures as we follow Jesus through this world? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. We read and we study the Bible because we want to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus well. We're not content to be a faith family, and we're not content to be followers of Jesus who just know about Jesus. There are a lot of big books written about Jesus. You can go into Barnes & Noble or Amazon Books, and you can find tons of books written about Jesus. In fact, more books have been written about Jesus than any other person in the history of humanity. Lots of books about Jesus, but there's only one book. There's only one book that we can read and engage and interact with where a true and personal relationship with this Jesus may be cultivated and crafted and established. And so we read and we study the Bible quite simply because we want to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus very well. I remember when I became a Christian, not long after becoming a Christian, and the gospel took root in my heart is... I found myself with an appetite for the scriptures. I wanted to read the Bible. And I wanted to read the Bible because there was something in me. Now I know it was the Holy Spirit just kind of drawing me towards the Bible saying, look, if you want to know your Savior, you need to read this book. You need to dive into the scriptures. And then I found myself reading 1 Peter one day and I came across this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. And the writer there, Peter, would put it this way. Listen to what he says. He says, like newborn infants... That's what a new Christian is. A new Christian is a newborn infant. Desire the pure milk of the word, meaning if this newborn is going to grow, they need to desire the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there Peter draws a connection between you and I getting to know Jesus, between you and I growing up in our salvation and the scriptures and the word. So we want to read the scriptures because we want to know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, we're going to grow up. We're going to mature together. Now, when I was a kid, I remember thinking every adult in my life was huge. I remember thinking my dad was just a big dude. I thought he was the biggest dude, the strongest dude, the fastest dude. That's how I envisioned my dad. But I got... As I got older and I grew up, uh, my dad did not seem to be as big as I thought. In fact, as I got bigger, my dad seemed to get a little smaller. And he wasn't quite the big man that I once thought as a kid. And I think about my daughter, Adeline. She today thinks I am the biggest man in the world. Who can blame her, right? Like she, she thinks dad is the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest. I love that. But I know over time, Adeline's going to get bigger. And when she gets bigger, it's, I'm going to appear to get smaller. And she's going to discover that I'm not quite as big as she thought as she was a kid. That's true for just about every person on the planet except one. There's one person on the planet that as, or in the universe where as you grow, he does not get smaller. But as you grow, he will always get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what it means to grow up as a follower of Jesus. As you mature in your faith, as you grow as a Christian... And you get bigger, so to speak. Jesus will never get smaller. He will never seem small. He will always get bigger and bigger and bigger. I love the way C.S. Lewis would describe this in one of his uh, allegories of the Christian faith, a story called Prince Caspian. And in this story, there's a character named Lucy, and she comes across Aslan. Aslan is, is the Christ figure in the story, and she hasn't seen Aslan in quite some time. And, and when she sees him again, listen to the interaction. He says to her, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. She said, not because you are, not because you are bigger. And he said, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And every year you grow as a follower of Jesus, you will find Jesus getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So let me ask you, how big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus right now? We're going to hold that question in our minds as we step into John chapter 1 because this is a passage designed to declare the bigness of Jesus, designed to kind of blow the doors off the limitations we put upon Jesus and the ways in which we may belittle him in our thinking or belittle him in our affections or belittle him in our understanding of what life is to be about in the world in which we live. And this is a passage written by a guy named John. And John was one of the apostles, and one of the unique things about John's story is that John was the last of the apostles, meaning he outlived all the other guys that he followed Jesus with in this world. And when he sat down to write the gospel of John, he did so after walking with Jesus for decades. 
So he had plenty of time to grow. He had plenty of time to mature. He had plenty of time to nurture his relationship with Jesus. And as he got older, as he matured in his faith, his Jesus got bigger and bigger and bigger. This is how John's gospel begins. So he would write this gospel and he would kickstart it in a way that is unique to John. It doesn't begin like the other three gospels, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You might say that the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of work from from the earth up. As in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll read about birth narratives and you'll learn about the story of how Jesus came into the world and how he was born to the Virgin Mary and went to the manger and all of those, those Christmas stories. Or you may read one of the other Gospels and you may discover something about Jesus' genealogy and you'll find out what family heritage he comes from, what stock on earth is he a part of. And, but with John's Gospel, you get a whole other starting point. John doesn't start from the earth working his way up. John starts from heaven and he works his way down. Why is that? Because John is writing towards the end of the first century. He's writing towards the end of his life. He's writing towards uh, after having lots of time with Jesus to grow and to mature. And so he comes out the gate declaring the bigness of Jesus. And you may not find another passage in the entire Bible that communicates the bigness of Jesus more comprehensively, more adequately than John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And so what I want us to do tonight is I want us to unpack, and I'm going to unpack as much as I can, seven truths about Jesus that John communicates in this passage. Seven big truths about who Jesus is. And the first one is this. He tells us right off the bat, beginning of verse 1, that Jesus is the eternal God. This is where his gospel begins. Jesus is the eternal God. He says, in fact, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we learn later, when you drop down to verse 17, that the word is identified as Jesus. So when you read word, you can just put Jesus' name in. And he's saying, Jesus was the word, and the word was with, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might read those words in the beginning and your mind might jump all the way back to the book of Genesis because the Bible begins with those exact same words, in the beginning. Only in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God, and it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And so when John is writing this, his first readers, they may have heard those first three words, in the beginning, they would have expected God's name to appear, but John drops this other reference. He says, the word, and he starts talking about Jesus. And then when you continue to see what he says, he says the word was God and the word was with God. And and you think about that, that that little verb was. It's a powerful one. That word was could literally be translated was continuing. In other words, John is bringing us all the way back before there was time referring to Jesus, referring to Christ. He says, the word was, or the word was continuing. We might translate this, and this is a tongue twister. Jesus always was wasing. Jesus always was wasing, meaning there was never a time when Christ did not exist because he is the eternal God. Now, let your heart just kind of rest in that for a moment. Jesus is the eternal God. Do you understand how good this is for us? For him to be beyond the confines of time and space, that means he is not subjected to all the things that frustrate us about time and space in this world. You and I get old. You and I get uncomfortable in time and space. There's a lot not to like about time and space, but here we have a God who is beyond that, who transcends time and space. And what does that tell to our hearts? Well, it tells us that our God never gets tired. It tells us that our God always has energy. It tells us, in a sense, that our God is forever young. He is forever young. He never gets old. He's not growing up in any discernible way. This is who God is, and there's a lot of rest for the heart in that. But then notice the word that John uses again. Why would John use the word, word, uh, for Jesus in this opening, opening passage? Well, there are two perspectives that come into play in how we should understand this use of word or logos in reference to Jesus. The first is what might be called a Hebrew perspective. You see, for the Hebrew perspective, they understood the logos or the word of God to be God's work in the world. When they talked about the word of God, that's where their mind would go, God's work, God's activity. This was Genesis chapter 1, God speaking the universe into existence. God engaged the work of creation through his word. But then you also understand that when 
God would speak, that was also the way for him to express himself or to reveal himself. He would engage in the work of revelation in and through his word. God's word was his work in the world. That is true of creation. That is true of revelation. And what you're going to find in the beginning of this gospel is that it's true in redemption as well. That God's word is God's work in the world. And God's word is the one who's going to step into the world to redeem us, to rescue us, to do a work for us. And so you understand this about Jesus and you sure your heart begins to, begins to broaden and your understanding of Jesus begins to grow as you begin to consider how big Jesus is as the eternal God, the word, God's work in the world. But then the second perspective here is a Greek perspective. Now for a long time, Greeks understood the logos as a, as a heavy philosophical concept. The Greeks love to talk about the Lagos. In fact, they encourage one another to pursue Lagos, to pursue the word. And the reason for that is that they believe that the Lagos or the word was the organizing principle in the universe that would bring order and meaning and life to people. And so the Greeks would pursue the Lagos, this philosophical concept, this philosophical construct of the universe. They would pursue it with everything that they had. That's why the Greeks excelled in philosophy back in the day. So you can imagine what a Greek reader may have thought the first time they picked up John's gospel and they read these words, in the beginning was the Lagos and the Lagos was with God and the Lagos was God. And you have John just dropping this bomb on people saying, look, if you're really looking for order, meaning, life and purpose, don't look for it in a principle. Don't look for it in an abstract concept. Find it in a person and this person's name is Jesus. John's just dropping this bomb on his readers in the first century. There's a guy by the name of John Stott who tells a story of a young man who lived in India, and his name was Sudan. And Sudan grew up hating Christianity. He viewed it as a foreign religion, not a part of his tribe, not a part of his people, not a part of his country. When he was 15 years old, he actually burned a copy of the Gospels. He didn't want anything to do with it. But three days after he burned a copy of the Gospels, he He had a remarkable encounter with Christ. He came to believe that Jesus was the Savior, and his life was changed. He began to grow. He began to mature, and he found himself uh, called by God to go and to teach the Bible. And so he would step onto university campuses and and talk about the Bible and talk about the Christian faith. Well, he was on one Hindu Hindu university campus when uh, another lecturer just kind of approached him aggressively, asking this question. "What what What did you find in Christianity that you didn't have in your own religion? And he said, well, I have Christ. And the guy said, yes, I know, continued the lecturer. But what particular principle have you found that you did not have before? The particular thing I have found, replied Sundar, is is Christ. You see, Christianity isn't a religion based on principles. It isn't a religion based on abstract concepts. Christianity is a religion rooted in a relationship with a person. So when you become a Christian, you don't just get smart. You don't just get philosophy. You become a Christian, you get the person. You get the eternal God of the universe stepping into your life so that you may have a relationship with him. So Jesus is the eternal God, but he's also the creator God. Notice verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. His The meaning of this is fairly clear, right? Jesus made everybody and he made everything. He's saying if there's anything made, Jesus made it. All things were created through him and nothing exists uh, that wasn't created. Nothing exists apart from him. But notice it also says that in Jesus there was life, meaning that as the creator God, Jesus is self-existent. Meaning Jesus is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for his welfare or for his uh, existence This means that Jesus is quite different from you and I. This is where we begin to see the big gap between Jesus and us, between us and God. Jesus, on one hand, is eternal. You and I are temporary. Jesus will never expire. You and I, apart from Jesus, will one day expire. He's eternal. We are temporary. He is creator. We are created. There's a big difference between he and we. So he is the creator God and And many people do not like this. There are other religions like Islam and other kind of cultic expressions of Christianity. One might be called Jehovah's Witnesses uh, that do not believe this about Jesus. They do not believe Jesus is the creator God. They believe he is a created being. 
But John is saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the creator of all beings. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, you read this and you learn this about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator God. This means everyone and everything comes from Jesus. This means everyone and everything exists for Jesus. But it also means that everyone and everything will one day return to Jesus. And as a result, we will give an account for the way we go about our days in this world to Jesus. Every person on the planet is accountable to their creator. And the creator's name, according to John chapter 1, is Jesus. And I believe each and every one of you kind of suspect that this is true, whether you're a Christian or if you're a Christian, I'm sure you believe this. If you're not a Christian, I suspect, you suspect this to be true because there is a God awareness in you that has not been entirely snuffed out by your sin. It hasn't been entirely snuffed out by the fall. There is still a light that the darkness of sin and the fall has not yet overcome. And so deep down, you suspect that God exists and deep down, you expect that you are accountable for the life that you are living. I think deep down inside, every person believes this on some level. We just ignore it. We try to escape from it. We distract ourselves so we don't have to deal with it. But deep down inside, I believe there's this, there's this awareness. There's this awareness. And the question is, what do you do with that? Well, what do you do with that light? Well, I would encourage you to follow it. Let that light turn your gaze and draw your gaze towards Jesus. Let it bring you to the point where you're seeing Jesus as he is, this one who is the eternal God, this one who is the creator God. Let it draw your gaze towards Jesus because what you're also going to see in verse 6 is that not only is Jesus eternal, not only is Jesus creator, Jesus is invading meaning Jesus is moving in your direction. He's coming towards you. Check it out, beginning of verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so here you're meeting a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the guy who wrote this book. He's not John the Apostle. He's John the Baptist. You might describe him as Jesus' crazy cousin. Because this was a guy who kind of lived on his own, apart from the city, apart from Jerusalem, out in the wilderness. And he had a weird fashion sense wearing camel's clothes, which wasn't uh, up to par in the first century. And he followed one of the crazy diets that somebody's probably following today, given all the diets. But he ate locusts and honey, and that was the way he would go about his, his days. But John the Baptist was, he kind of fell in a long line of people sent by God to bear witness to the word to bear witness to the light, to prepare the wor world for the Messiah's arrival. This is why John the Baptist is referred to as the forerunner, and that's not the vehicle. He's the forerunner in the sense that he stepped into the world before Jesus, and he prepared people for his arrival, saying, look, God's coming. Saying, look, Messiah's coming. This was John the Baptist's role. He told everybody, God is invading. He's coming towards us. And I can't tell you how revolutionary this is and how we think and know God to be because so many of us perhaps are conditioned by religions that were created and crafted by human beings or spiritualities that were created and crafted by human beings and then inspired by uh, demonic spirits and activities. And we get this understanding that says, okay, if there is a God, he's certainly not moving in my direction. I've got to figure out how to move into his and so what happens is if we want to get God in our lives or somebody wakes up and they start uh, searching for God in some discernible way, they, they look for a religion, they look for a spirituality, and usually what all these things have in common is a path given to them that they must follow to work their way to God. And so life then becomes one big journey where I've got to get to God. But here in the gospel, Jesus flips the script on that. He's saying, look, the real God, the true God of the universe isn't a God who's sitting back on his hills waiting for you to find your way to him. The God of the universe who created all things, who exists beyond time and space, the one who reveals himself in the person of Jesus, he wasn't content to sit back. Instead, he invaded. He moved towards us before we ever thought about moving towards him. Jesus is the invading God. 
He's the one who comes to us moving in our direction, whether before we ever thought or considered about moving in his. In John chapter 3, verse 17, there's a moment where God, we're told why Jesus would invade. And listen to what we're told in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, meaning Jesus did not invade to condemn us and to condemn the world. Instead, Jesus invaded the world to save us to redeem us, to rescue us. Because not only is Jesus the invading God, he is the saving God. He comes to our rescue to redeem us, to save us from ourselves, to save us from the mess we make of the lives that we're living and the world that, we've, that we are inhabiting. So you drop into the saving God, verse 10. Jesus was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right Get this, the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So Jesus is the invading God. He's the saving God. But here, John begins to identify how people responded to Jesus. And people responded then much like people respond today. There were some people who reject Jesus and there are others who receive Jesus. And we are told that those who would receive Jesus, those who would take the gospel in and believe Jesus is who he says he is and that he accomplished all the things that he accomplished for them, we're told that this Jesus would give them the right to be the children of God. Now, I understand that we live in a culture that blasts binary thinking. A culture that blasts binary thinking. We don't like to think in categories of two. We don't like to think of categories that are distinct from one another. We just like to think in one big one category where everything's the same. But if we're hearing John 1 correctly, you can't help but hear the binary categories that God is communicating to us, that John is affirming in this text. And when you become a Christian, you're really learning how to think differently than how you did before you were a Christian. You're learning to think kind of after God, you're learning to fill your mind with the word of God and you're beginning to think and see the world the way God thinks about and sees the world. And, and what you're going to find as you engage the Bible is that there are a lot of binary categories. And you see a lot of them here in John chapter 1, don't you? Creator, created. That's binary. There's a creator, there's creation. There's light and darkness. That's binary, two categories. There's life and death. That's binary, two categories. They're not the same. But then you come into this moment and John starts talking about the children of God. And he's talking about being made children of God. There's a huge implication behind that, isn't there? I think the implication is that not every person on the planet can identify as children of God. Not every person on the planet is a son or a daughter of God. Because becoming a child of God doesn't have anything to do with being human. And it doesn't have anything to do with the family you were born into. It doesn't have anything to do with the religion you subscribe to. It doesn't have anything to do with the spirituality you may practice in this world. Being a child of God in this sense has everything to do with how you respond to Jesus. Do you reject him or do you receive him? And as you move through the Gospel of John, you begin to see that there are people who rejected Jesus, people that you would may be surprised by when you kind of see how Jesus would talk about them. You jump all the way to John chapter 8, and Jesus is talking to uh, religious leaders, Pharisees, who rejected Jesus. And he introduces a binary alternative to being a child of God, and it might surprise you. Listen to what Jesus says to these religious leaders, these Pharisees who rejected Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44. He tells them, you are of your father, the devil. He says, you're not a child of God. He actually tells these guys, you're children of the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God, get this, the one who's from God or born of God, the children of God, those who receive the word, who receive Jesus, they listen to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you're not from God. Do you hear the binary alternative that Jesus introduces, saying, look, those who reject Jesus, they're not the children of God in this sense. They're the children of the devil. And I know that may sound heavy. I know that may sound shy. But understand, when you hear that, don't think in stereotypes. 
Don't think to be a child of the devil means that you're going to dress in all black and you're going to, you know, drink the blood of animals that you sacrificed at Halloween or, or go to some other satanic temple that there's a lot of, actually, in the Pacific Northwest. It doesn't mean that. Being a child of the devil, according to Jesus, has everything to do with whether or not you receive or reject Jesus. The Pharisees were good people, relatively speaking. The Pharisees were moral people. They were religious people. They were devout people. And yet Jesus says, you rejected me. Therefore, you're still on the other side. You're still in the other camp. You're still in the other category. They did not receive Jesus. Therefore, they did not have the right to be called a child or the children of God. You see, becoming a Christian has everything to do with receiving Jesus. And when you receive Jesus, you are brought into the family of God so that all of a sudden you're not just relating to God as your creator, you're relating to God as your father. And you become his son, you become his daughter because you receive Jesus. And Jesus brings you into the family. That's what salvation is all about. That's what Jesus being the saving God is going after. But that brings us to verse 14, which contains the most mind-blowing, perhaps, truth about Jesus in the entire Bible. He goes on in verse 14. Listen to what he says. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the only one and Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying that Jesus is the human God. It's the most mind-blowing, enthralling truth in the Scriptures. And let me give you a big word for this, this whole idea of the word becoming flesh, of Jesus being the human God, a big word that you might take and try to impress your friends with this week or irritate them depending on what types of personalities they have. But the word is incarnation. And the word, and incarnation means the word became flesh, that God became human. That's what incarnation means. And C.S. Lewis would refer to this as the grand miracle that he who made humanity would be made human. That's the incarnation. And it's a mind-blowing thought. In another one of those magical lines from Narnia, Lewis records Lucy making this statement. She tells people in Narnia, in our world too, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. That's the incarnation. That the baby born of the Virgin Mary, placed in a manger, was bigger than the entire universe. Jesus is the human God. And when you think about the word becoming flesh, understand that it is a matter of addition, not subtraction. That when God became human, he did not cease to be divine. He did not subtract his divinity from his nature. Instead, he added his human. He added our humanity. He became like us. And he became like us in order to identify with us, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And when you read the word flesh there, understand that flesh implies all of our creaturely weakness. That is everything except our sin. Think about it. Everything except our sin, Jesus identifying with human weakness. Do you understand what this means about God? This means that God subjected himself to the entire process of human development. This means God wore a diaper. This means God endured puberty. God's voice changed at some point in time in human history. It happened. He subjected himself to the entire process of human development, identifying with the weaknesses and the peculiarities of the human condition. This is who Jesus is, who God is for us in Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's important because it tells us that our God is able to identify with us. It tells us that our God knows us intimately. He is aware of what it means to be tempted. He is aware of what it means to be tired. He is aware of what it means to suffer. He is aware of what it means to endure life in a fallen world. This means we have a highly relatable God, a relevant God. Jesus being the human God is one of the most relevant realities in all of the universe. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus, fully human, fully God, all at the same time. It's a mystery. I can't adequately explain it. Neither can you. It's a mystery that we want to embrace. It's not a mystery that we want to solve or a tension that we want to cut. We want to keep it. Jesus is the human God. That though he was born of Mary, he, is the crea- he was the creator of all things. Though Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, he remained all-knowing and he was all-knowing and all-powerful. Though he slept on a boat, he ha- was capable of calming storms. 
Though he got hungry, Jesus was the bread of life. Though he got thirsty, Jesus was the living water. Though he wept when Lazarus died, he was capable of raising him from the dead. Though his soul was troubled when he stepped into Gethsemane, he remained the Prince of Peace. Though he died on a cross, Jesus remained the resurrection and the life. And though he ascended bodily, physically into heaven, Jesus promises to be with you and I all the time. How is that possible? Except Jesus is the human God. There's something unique about him. There's something mysterious about his person. This is who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon once said that when I find a mystery in the Bible that I cannot resolve, I build an altar and I worship. When I find a mystery I cannot resolve, I build an altar and I worship. This is the best response to Jesus being the human God. Now, each week during our series, one of our artists contributes a piece of art as an act of worship to help us do just that. And after meditating upon the fact that Jesus is the human God, Kristen Miyasoto submitted a piece titled The Life of God. Now, the print that you're going to see on screen does not do it justice. She describes this piece as a wood-burned experimental typography. If you're an artist, you know what that means. If you're not, you don't. It means she did something fun with wood, and it doesn't show up necessarily on the print. But listen to her words when she was thinking about this piece and why she did it the way that she did it. She said, one of the most baffling things to me about the life of God and the person of Jesus is the humility in which God became flesh to reveal himself to the world and to save it from death. He was born in a way that would have been considered dishonorable to an unmarried woman in the presence of animals. He had a profession of physical labor in a town from which people thought no good could come. He was not physically attractive and at some point was a nomad without a place to rest his head. When he taught, he challenged conventions of years of Jewish law and tradition, offending religious leaders, and taught in parables which left many confused. He was betrayed and abandoned by his friends, traded for a criminal, and died gruesomely. As if it were not enough that God became human, even in his humanity, was not what we would expect of a promised Messiah. This is how God chose to come in our form to be what we could not, revealing his beauty and love in mystifying humility. Now, this piece aims to highlight glory and hidden beauty and humility and was inspired by the very human acts of the life of God as son, brother, carpenter, teacher, friend. And at first glance, one may only notice simple lines and shapes burned into wood. Looking longer, the forms that were illegible at first are actually words that were created using the form of the rings of the wood. And the verse burned into the wood speaks of the humility of God in the flesh. And she quotes, there's a quote from Isaiah inscribed. And it says, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The humility of God in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the human God, glory veiled in flesh. This is who Jesus is. The word became flesh. But then we're also told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You got to love that phrase. Literally, it means that Jesus tabernacled among us or God tabernacled among us. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place of worship for the people of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. The tabernacle is where God's glory fell and filled it up. And that's where God's presence resided in the midst of the people of Israel. And what I love about that story is that when the tabernacle would be set up, Israel was divided up into 12 tribes, and all 12 tribes would camp out around the tabernacle so that the tabernacle occupied the central position in the life of Israel. And here John is saying that Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the one where God's glory resides. He's the one who should occupy the functional center of our lives, of our thinking, of our worldview, of our relationships. Jesus should occupy the functional center of our lives and our worship. This is what it means for him to, to be the ultimate tabernacle. But he's not the one that we tend to center our lives around. We tend to center our lives on all types of other things drawn from creation things that are temporary and not eternal, things that are momentary and not lasting. Now, you might think of it this way. You know, our sun is pretty powerful. It'll last a long time, but eventually our sun is going to be a dying star. Our sun is going to burn out. It's going to go away. And when that happens, everything that's orbiting around it is going to be flung away, and everything that's orbiting around it is going to disintegrate. 
And you think about that because the best things in our life, in this world, the very best things in this world are but dying stars. They're but dying stars. And if we orbit our lives around them, eventually when they die out, we will fling apart and we will disintegrate. So what do we do then? Well, we recognize that jobs are good, but jobs aren't God. We recognize that health is good, but health is not God. We recognize that relationships are good with family and friends, but relationships aren't God. We recognize that children are good, but children are not God. We recognize that there's a lot of good things in the universe, but none of them warrant the central position in our lives, the, uh, the functional center of who we are and how we're going about these days. Because if we center our lives around the dying stars of this world, eventually when they go away, we will too. But if we center our lives on Jesus, the eternal one, the creator, the invading one, the savior, the human God, we center our lives around the true tabernacle, all of a sudden, we're set free to be able to enjoy the things of this world without being enslaved to them, to enjoy this world without being enslaved to it, because our lives don't depend upon the things of this world. Our lives are dependent upon the one star that will never die, the one star that will never burn out. Our lives are dependent upon Jesus. This is why we would say, six, that Jesus is the better God. He is the better God. You might say, better than what? Better than everything. He's better than any other person, place, or thing on this planet, any other person, place, or thing in the universe. He is the better God. This is where John goes next when he says that John testified concerning Jesus and exclaimed, get this, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. In other words, John is saying Jesus is better than me. He's more important than me. He's more significant than me. This is what John the Baptist was saying of Jesus. And that was important because there were a lot of people who centered their lives around John the Baptist. They believed he was the light. He was their leader. He was their influencer. But here John the Baptist saying, look, I'm not the light. I'm just a lamp. I'm not the one that you should be looking for. He is. And he deferred people to Jesus saying, look, no matter what you're going through, Jesus is better. No matter who you are or where you're coming from, Jesus is better. That was John the Baptist's message. So you consider that and you got to love this about John the Baptist because he did not suffer from a Messiah complex. He did not believe he was anyone's savior. So he quickly deferred people to Jesus always deferring to Jesus. I love this about him, and I fear that this isn't a practice that we readily hold. I don't think we quickly defer to Jesus in our relationships with each other. We do not quickly defer to Jesus in our relationship with neighbors here in Seattle. And when we're not deferring to Jesus, do you realize what we're doing? We're giving the impression that our counsel, that our wisdom, that our money, that our talents, that our time, that our attention is better for people than Jesus's. That's why we don't mention his name readily. That's why we don't talk about him quickly. That's why we don't defer to Jesus in our interactions with each other as quickly as we should. It's practically saying, look, we are better than Jesus. We're not going to defer to him. We're going to carve out our own path. We're going to derive our own counsel. We're going to derive our own path forward to help people and to fix people and to remedy people and to improve people and all the while we're living as though we are better than Jesus but the reality is we're not Jesus is better than John the Baptist Jesus is better than me and he's better than all of you and so we live our lives with the humility of deferring to Jesus saying he is better he is more important he's the one who's best for everyone and so we mention his name and we talk about the savior but not only is he better than John the Baptist in this passage he's better than Moses Look what he says next. He says, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, that is Jesus's. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. He's saying Jesus is overflowing with grace. He's saying, yeah, Moses gave the law, that was good, but Jesus gives grace. Moses gave a law that you and I could not carry forward, that you and I could not fulfill, that you and I could not obey. But Jesus steps into the world, and what does he do? He fulfills the law. He carries the law. He obeys the law. And as a result, he becomes the grace giver. So if you want grace, where do you go? You don't go to the law, you go to Jesus. You want grace, you don't go to Moses, you go to Jesus. If you want grace, you don't go anywhere but Jesus. And I love the way this word grace is used here because that word grace could also be translated, it's kind of that idea of what cause, grace is that which causes joy 
or winsomeness. That's what grace does in our souls. When grace is flooding your soul, you become a joyful, winsome person who's no longer taking yourself as serious as you're tempted to do. And you're no longer taking life in this world as seriously as you're tempted to take it. Instead, you become a joyful, more winsome person because God's grace is coming to you from Jesus in an unceasing fashion, without interruption, without hesitation, without limitation. Jesus is the better God because he alone gives grace. Now, Every one of us, on some level, we wrestle with different types of idols. There are things in our lives that we center our lives around and that we kind of live for, and we all have them, and we're all fighting against them. And I don't know what your idol is, but I want to tell you something about your idol. Your idol is not a giver of grace. Your idol will always demand more of you than they are able to give to you. In other words, idols in this world, anything in creation that we want to treat as God, they are ruthlessly limited. They are ruthlessly limited. And here's what I mean by that. Just ask anyone who idolizes people's approval. If you're someone who idolizes people's approval and you are laboring to please everyone around you and you're going to discover that your work's never done because idols are ruthlessly limited. You may please a person for a moment or for a season or for a stretch, but eventually, eventually, they won't be pleased anymore. Idols are ruthlessly limited. They have no grace in them to give to us, a grace that causes joy, a grace that can create life and winsomeness. Idols can't do that, but Jesus can. Jesus is the better God. He gives grace to us, not in response to anything we have done or will do. He gives grace freely, forever flooding our souls with joy and winsomeness, with life and salvation. This is who Jesus is. He is the better God. And that brings me to the final one. Not only is Jesus the better God, understand that Jesus is the intimate God. Listen to how John wraps up his prologue with these words. He says, no one has ever seen God, the, only, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. What that means is, what we all probably know is that God is spirit. He's invisible. We've never seen him, but we're told here that Jesus stepped into the world and he showed us what God is like. That in some way, Jesus made God visible to us. Therefore, everything we need to know about God, we can see and enjoy in the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, one of the things we learn about God is that God is incredibly intimate, that God is incredibly personal. Jesus is the intimate God. Let me show it to you. There's a phrase here that I would encourage you to underline. It's one of my favorite phrases in the entire prologue of John. And it's that phrase, at the Father's side. And I love that phrase because it is an intimate phrase. It's a reminder of the intimacy shared between God the Father and God the Son. And another way of translating that is that the Son is sitting in the Father's lap. That's the imagery here. So God the Father and God the Son, the Son sitting in the Father's lap. It's a picture of intimacy. It's intense intimacy of what the Father and the Son enjoyed together. And that's what they enjoyed forever. That's what they've always enjoyed. Until one day, this Jesus that stepped into our world, he would live his life enjoying his Father, honoring his Father, loving his Father. But then eventually Jesus would find himself hanging on a cross, wouldn't he? And he would find himself being crucified. And when he was being crucified, the intimacy he enjoyed with his father was interrupted. This is why Jesus would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he makes that statement. He cries that out. As he died, we're told that everything went dark in the world. And we sing in hymns that in that moment, the father turned his face away. And the intimacy Jesus enjoyed with his father was interrupted. It was, it was wrecked momentarily. You might see that in that moment, Jesus experienced hell on the cross as he was no longer enjoying the favor of his father. Instead, he was experiencing the judgment of God, the wrath of God. All of that coming upon him, interrupting the intimacy he enjoyed, not because Jesus did anything wrong, but because we did. Because we're sinners. And so Jesus would die on the cross, and in that moment, his intimacy was interrupted. And not long after he died, he was, his corpse was taken down. He was placed in a tomb there where he laid for three days. But then three days later, a miracle happened. And we, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. And 
And when he resurrected, what happened? He returned to his father's lap. Intimacy with his father was restored. So here's the question I want to ask you. Why did Jesus allow his intimacy with his father to be interrupted? Why did Jesus allow his intimacy to be interrupted by going to the cross? I have a daughter named Adeline. She's two years old, and she loves her mother's lap. She loves the intimacy. She enjoys sitting in her mother's lap, so much so that she will not let anybody else join her there. And so when her brother, although he is bigger than her, although he is older than her, when he comes to mom, she kicks him away. She pushes him away. She bullies her brother so that she could have mom's lap all to, him, all to herself. Same thing goes for my daughter Delaney, who's much older and much bigger than Adeline. But still, Adeline bullies Delaney, says, look, this lap is mine. I'm going to enjoy my mother by myself. And she will bully her kids to keep them away. Well, Jesus is a lot better than Adeline. Jesus allowed his intimacy with the Father to be interrupted because, because he wanted to pull us into it. He didn't want to push us away. He did not want to kick us away. He wanted to draw us into the intimacy with the Father and the Son. He wanted to bring us in to the life of God. He wanted to bring us in to intimacy and relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus allowed his intimacy to be interrupted so that he could pull you and I into it. And so later in 1 John chapter 1, this, the writer of this gospel would tell us that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Our intimacy is with Jesus and the Father. Our communion is with Jesus and the Father. This is the God that we know. This is the God whose lap we crawl up into as kids rescued and redeemed by the Savior. This is what it means to be a Christian. You receive Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as your Lord. You're brought in to the family of God, and there you crawl up into the lap, lap of the Father with Jesus, and you commune with him. You know God. You experience intimacy with God. If you're not a Christian today, let me, let me encourage you. Stop rejecting Jesus and start receiving Jesus. Let me encourage you, God's lap is big enough for you. Be made one of his sons. Be made one of his daughters. Receive the Savior and slide onto his lap, enjoying God now and forever. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus is an invitation to intimacy. It's an invitation to know God in this familial capacity. And I pray that each and every one of us each and every one of us enjoy that reality in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider the bigness of Jesus and we recognize that Jesus is so big, he's close. And we love you for that. We trust you for that. We recognize that in Jesus and we pray that you would help us to continue to process these truths and to respond appropriately to Jesus. God, help us to grow so that you, Jesus, would be as big as you are in our lives. And we see that you are so big, you are close. And we want to know you. We want to commune with you. We want to be intimate with you. And I pray that you would make that happen all in Jesus' name. Amen.